as the investigation proceeded, another letter surfaced that was sent to the press and the police, and it said, I killed Charlene Hummert, not her husband. We had an affair for the past nine months. She wanted to break it off, so I broke her neck. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is famed linguist, Dr. Robert Leonard, who is going to talk about his career and especially his work in forensic linguistics, which is the use of language to help solve crimes and to prevent crimes from happening. In 2017, The New Yorker wrote that Robert Leonard, quote, has emerged as one of the foremost language detectives in the country and called him the Sam Spade of semantics. Robert is qualified as an expert witness in linguistics in 12 states and six federal district courts, and has testified before the World Bank International Center of Settlement and Investment Disputes Tribunals in Washington, D.C. and Paris. Today, he's gonna talk about how he got into the field of forensic linguistics, some of the cases he's helped solve and his earlier career as a member of the doo-wop band, Shanana. It's a great honor to welcome my friend, the multi-talented Robert Leonard, as today's hero behind the headlines. I was born in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a time when it was not as fashionable as it is now. <laughs> a lot of us folks from my day are still in shock that people want to put Brooklyn on their brand name. Um, and uh, I lived on the border of Bedford-Stuyvesant, and I uh, went to first grade. I was the only English speaker in my first grade class except for the teacher, and there was no aid or anything. So it was a bunch of really cool Puerto Rican kids and me and an English-speaking teacher, and the only one I, could, I was the only one who could understand. So I learned Puerto Rican Spanish fairly quickly, um, and uh, the uh, thing that I heard the most was, ¿Qué dijo la bruja? What, what, is, what is the witch? What's the witch saying now? Um, so... Uh, maybe that's why I was always interested in language. So then we moved out to Long Island pretty soon after, and I grew up in an area on Long Island where every single person I went to school with was from Brooklyn. Um, I don't think I met any. I used to say I didn't meet anybody who wasn't born in Brooklyn until I was like 18. No, no, my girlfriend was from Queens. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And our, our um, like high school fraternity, we, we played Brooklyn street games, our high school fraternities were not Alpha, Beta, Kappa. They were the Ligurians, Olympians, <laughs> leather jackets with it on the back, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, and there was a lot of uh, physicality, let's say. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you were exposed to lots of different forms of communication, let's say, from an yeah, early like, age. Yeah, like yeah. fights after school, yeah. Uh, yeah. like every week at least. Yeah. Right, right. So. It was it's good training for the world at large, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my father was a federal judge, but he started out 
growing up in Hell's Kitchen, where he was his block's champion fighter. Wow. So that he fought every single day. Other blocks would bring their champions <laughs> so that he could fight them. I, I guess it was a very, uh, I mean, it was intelligent way of doing things, right? Rather than having 30 kids all breaking each other's heads. It was really interesting. And then he was the uh, uh, Columbia boxing champion. Imagine, in the 30s, they had boxing champions at Columbia. The world has changed, yeah. So uh, my brother and I, we wanted to do golden gloves, and he was training us. And then one day I saw a photograph of this young guy, like 13-year-old, and I didn't recognize him. I couldn't figure out who it was. And my father says, oh, that's me. I said, oh, but this guy has my nose. Wait a minute. And I looked at my father's nose. It had been broken so many times. <laughs> I said, you know what? I think I'm going to give up boxing, <laughs> yeah, Bob. Is that what I'm going to end up looking <laughs> that's like? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, lucky I did. So I um, went to college, and uh, I got involved in uh, studying other languages, and then I discovered that there was actually a field called linguistics, which I had never heard of before, where you studied how languages actually operate. The amazing thing about languages, although even we use it all the time, every single day, we just open our mouths and out comes language, we don't consciously understand much about it. The only formal training anybody gets in school is don't say ain't, don't say I ain't got none, uh, speak standard English. But language is so complicated and so unobvious that it is, it's not like wheeling a wheelbarrow, it's like piloting a rocket ship in 15 different dimensions at once. And that's what linguistics is the science of systematic observation. Everything is driven by data. Theoretical principles that we nowadays, as a forensic linguist, we use to solve cases, to reveal who actually wrote that death threat, to understand why nobody on that jury understood what they were actually voting for when they decided to put the guy to death or... Right. Right. Life I've been on parole. some of those juries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have well, to explain to the other jurors what, what the people were saying. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, in, in Arizona, there is a group of judges and uh, attorneys who are who meet to try to rewrite right now the death penalty jury instructions for the state of Arizona. And they recruited me. And I was very surprised, and I thought I would be an outsider because I'm not a judge or a lawyer, but they actually are very, very happy to get the insight that many, many decades of scientific analysis of why people do or don't understand things uh, can be put in, and it's really improving tremendously. For example, we have a flow chart so that, you know, if this, you go to this nod at uh, uh, node and then if you if not you go to that node and so many people are visual learners it, it, but i think it's the first time i've ever heard of death penalty jury instructions having a visual aspect too so i really take my hat off to those guys we we had studied it for around eight months at hofstra university where i uh teach now it's on long island and new york city area um the law school and their students and my partner over there eric friedman who's the distinguished constitutional law professor, we studied their death penalty uh, instructions, and my uh, graduate 
interns, and we just studied to to death. I was going to say, oh well, and <laughs> and tried to to simplify it. And it's really hard because it, if you've ever been on a jury, and you have, you have to have instructions that reflect both statutory law and then all of the um, case law as well. And it's very very different from place to place. So. So mostly, of course, I do, uh, unfortunately, death penalty. And, you know, there, of course, you have guilt phase and then yeah. uh, sentencing. So in that regard, they do. But typically, of course, not. They just find the guy guilty or not guilty, right? Right, right, right. So m- to go back to my story, so I kept taking languages and uh, I wound up in uh, this rock band that was really successful. And I could not take... Uh, Monday or Friday classes because we were always on the road. Uh, we'd fly away from New York to L.A. for the weekend and then to Houston or someplace. And I wanted to begin another language. And out of 55 different languages taught at Columbia, all the first years are taught Monday through Friday in those days. Except there was one that was not taught Monday through Friday. It was only taught Tuesday. And I said, okay, I'll take that. And it was Swahili. So I took, I took Swahili, and, as, and now I have taught Swahili on several different continents. Uh, I taught it at Columbia. I taught it at Hofstra. I taught it all over Africa. We'll get to that in a sec. And um, I always tell my students, the day I walked into Swahili class, I could not even have found Africa on a map. That's how little I knew about it. And I fell madly in love with it. Bantu languages are tremendously complex. For example, there are 18 different grammatical genders, 18 different noun classes. It's the exact equivalent of Spanish or French having 18 genders. And everything has to agree. Isn't that amazing? Three of these genders have to do with different aspects of time and space. Talk about piloting a spaceship in five (laughs) different dimensions. So I studied it, and then I went to graduate school, and I specialized in it because everybody had to specialize in a different language. They always said, you know, if we're going to be urban sociologists, we wouldn't all study Detroit. So my colleagues studied French, another one did English, another did uh, Portuguese, and I did Swahili. And at the end of it, I said, hmm. Well, now I have to write my dissertation. Why don't I see if I can get over there? And I applied for a Fulbright Fellowship, and I got it. And I was supposed to spend a year in East Africa, and I wound up spending like five or six altogether. Uh, It was the greatest uh, experience of my life, uh, the nicest, best people in the world. And I wound up being very fluent in a couple of dialects of Swahili. I I actually, at one point, was the New Jersey State... um, uh, official interpreter for the court system in Swahili. <laughs> Fantastic. And, yeah, Fantastic. And, and it was wonderful because people really didn't expect a white kid from Brooklyn to be right. speaking fluent Swahili. And fortunately, it worked against me sometimes too because one day I got picked up by the secret police who had convinced themselves that the reason that I spoke two or three dialects of Swahili better than some of them because they weren't Swahilis uh, was that I was a CIA agent. So, um, and I had seen people get um, interrogated, uh, just the, 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 the merest part of it, and it was a very physical, terrible interrogation I saw. 
Uh, and that was just walking by. But so they told me that I was a CIA agent. That was it. They didn't want to know anything else. And uh, I thought my number was up. But uh, by grace of God, I had a piece of paper on me from both the Fulbright Commission and the president of Kenya's office. And at first they didn't believe me, but then they, I mean, because the last thing in the world that they figured was I was going on these sailing dows on the northeast part of Kenya, on the, on the coast of the Indian Ocean, uh, sailing on these dows to these tiny little islands right next to Somalia, which at that time was a Russian um, client state. And the last thing in the world, they thought somebody was going to come to New York to study these tiny little dialects that were disappearing. So uh, I, I got out of that okay. The term forensic linguistics appeared for the first time in a publication by Swedish linguist and professor Jans Fortvik in 1968, in which he described the use of linguistic methods to investigate a serial murder case. He pointed out that each human being uses language differently, and that this difference between people can be observed just as easily and surely as a fingerprint. Since the late 60s, the use of forensic linguistics has been applied increasingly in criminal and civil investigations. Applications include voice identification of suspects or witnesses, interpretation of expressed meaning in laws and legal writings, analysis of discourse in legal settings, interpretation of intended meaning in oral and written statements or confessions, authorship identification, the language of law, analysis of courtroom language, trademark law and interpretation, and translation when more than one language is used in a legal context. So from linguistics, I, I came back to the States and I got my doctorate from Columbia. And my specialty is uh, theory of meaning, how people actually are using these sound waves coming out of our mouths and reconstructing them into meaning and if you think about it that is one of the least obvious things in the world i mean there's very few things in the world more different than sound and meaning right uh, so and also sociolinguistics which is a study of how people use language in real life on the street or on the sailing dow and i was trained to um, do recordings. I, I recorded um, street gangs in uh, outside of Detroit, which was a uh, that was a trip. Yeah. And um, yeah, at yeah. first I thought they were just going to help me carry my <laughs> recorder. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> that but was the there, Errol Flynn's in those days. Yeah, <laughs> they, that, there that were ways of. of, yeah. of and no, I didn't know those guys. Uh, I was in Ypsilanti. Um, uh, we had we had procedures that uh, explained what we were doing, and, and we became good friends of these guys. They were very interested that people wanted to know how they spoke, and and what their lives were like, and uh, it was great. And also in Thailand, because after I left Kenya, I went to school in Thailand to study Thai, and um, like that, and Hawaii. So I used all of these actual recordings of real people doing what they normally do and telling stories to form a theory of how people actually communicate. 
and and that's what we did. And I also compared Swahili to Dutch and English, and my colleagues used the French and Spanish and Russian. And this was the theory that we uh, developed at Columbia, called the Columbia School. Fantastic. Yeah, I don't so, think I, th- I don't think until people learn another language, you, you don't realize how different languages have different ways of describing things. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's very interesting because there are some very good linguists who don't speak another language, but of course they're very familiar with other languages. But at least for me, and I agree with you, uh, I mean, when I did the first murder case, which I was going to get to just now, I saw things because I had studied them in Swahili and it was in the forefront of my mind. And um, well, so. So you're thinking day, they'll describe, that they would describe it differently? They would see it differently. No. From, well, oh, okay. Well, yes and no. Okay. So I'll just go into it. So the Pennsylvania State Police, a major crime unit, came to me one day and they said, We have these two documents. We'd like you to look at them and tell us what you can say about whoever wrote them. So I said, Okay. And one was a threatening letter um, that said, um, uh, well, it, the woman's, this woman, woman's husband found this letter on his um, wind, windshield, and it said, here is the proof. Do what you will with it. Uh, I only come back occasionally to the area. Merry Christmas. I'll send you several copies of this, so in case your wife intercepts one. And the guy goes on and he says uh, he was in a band and he had an affair with the woman's, uh, with the guy's wife. And um, she ratted him out to his girlfriend who had an abortion and now can't have kids. So as he says in the end, um, the time is now right for payback. I hope to see your wife miserable the next time I'm in the area. And in there was a, a glamour shot of the wife that somehow this guy had gotten from a, uh, a Photoshop that she had had a, uh, a picture taken. She says, I'll bet you never saw this picture before. And the, I didn't know, but the woman had already been murdered. And as the investigation proceeded, another letter surfaced that was sent to the press and the police. And it said, I killed Charlene Hummert, not her husband. We had an affair for the past nine months. She wanted to break it off, so I broke her neck. I wrote letters to her husband and to the detective. I used a white nylon rope to kill her. They won't find me. I'm leaving, et cetera, et cetera. She knew about pictures on the PC. She told story to set up husband for the divorce. Ha ha. Bye-bye for now, John. So... The second one was scrawled on a piece of paper with all sorts of cross-outs, and um, they looked very different. The first one was typed. It was very uh, long and and well-written, and without knowing, I assumed that the police had some suspicion it was written by the same person, but they didn't know. So what I did was I looked under the surface of what there was because the most important thing you can remember when you're dealing with uh, documents like this uh, is disinformation. Clearly, the these guys don't want to sign their real names. Right, or they're trying to identify. mislead you. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So how are they trying to mislead? And the easiest way 
is to try to dumb down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot easier than dumbing up, right? Yeah. So yeah. they'll make spelling mistakes and the grammar will fall apart and things like that. So looking under the surface, I noticed, among other things, that both letters had a tremendous handle on how to tell a story, how to write a narrative. They had very complicated flashbacks. They had complicated flash forwards in time. They had complicated series of stepping out of the stream of the story and giving extra information. Tremendously skilled. Yeah, I noticed that in the notes. Yeah, they move around a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's very hard to do. Uh, I mean, yes. if you think about, you know, how listening to, I always say to classes and, and trainings, think about a 10-year-old that you know trying to tell you a story or a six-year-old uh, about some movie. It's all over the place. It's very hard to do. So even this scrawled letter had the same really excellently done narrative. And that sort of belied that the person couldn't spell very well or write very well. And it was one of the first things that I studied in Swahili was narrative structure. Swahili has a separate set of tenses that they use for narratives. They don't just use the past tense. They use these very um, different set of tenses that have to do with probability. Uh, It's really fascinating. So whenever I see anything, the narrative structure just pops up for me. So... I looked at that based on I, your on your understanding of Swahili. Yeah, that was that was helped. I mean, presumably we would have found it anyway, but that that was that helped, and that's what I was referring to before. And uh, you know, because if if you know some other language, uh, you're seeing things from a different vantage point. So, I hypothesized that um, it they could have been written by the same person, but uh, they they wanted to be able to go to a judge and say there's a lot of real good data here that says that it could be the same person. So I kept studying it and I kept studying it. And then I found a really good link. So number one, it was about the same dialect if I just threw out the obvious mistakes on purpose, which were only in the second half of the letter, no less. So we had this complex narrative structure, time shifts, well-executed flashbacks, flash-forwards, and, uh, in general, a lack of features that suggested different authors. But then I noticed that there was this uncommon literary device. It was so uncommon, well, that when I went to experts on rhetorical devices, they didn't even have a name for it. In the first letter, the stalker letter, it was written, I would have loved to have found out a couple of days later she made sure my fiance found out. She dumped me and then had an abortion. In the serial killer letter, because the guy said, uh, I killed her, nah, this was the fifth woman I killed. I killed Charlene Hummert, not her husband. We had an affair for the past nine months. She wanted to break it off, so I broke her neck. Very complicated. Yeah, love to have found out. She made sure my fiance found out. She wanted to break it off, so I broke her neck. So what? what's the odds on two totally different people having all these narrative abilities and just happening to use the same rhetorical device that nobody uses. Yeah, so and, really, a, and a complex one as well. Very complex. And um, 
So this also shows that you can't go on your own intuition. You have to have experts of on and do research on every aspect. You can't go off, you know, half cocked and say, oh, this seems to me to be idiosyncratic. So uh, on the basis of that, the police got a warrant for the husband's uh, uh, writings. And indeed, we showed that he was the likely author of both of these. And... Um, and on odd things, for example, contractions. He never contracted positive verbs. So he never wrote I'll. He no, never wrote I'm. He always wrote I am. Negative sometimes. Sometimes he would say did not, sometimes didn't. But in all the stuff I had from him, there were 74 possibilities of contracting a verb in positive verb and he didn't contract any of them. And I'd never seen that pattern before. And in the two letters, there were 23 possibilities, and he didn't contract any of them. And I even did a study of the people in York, Pennsylvania, how they wrote letters to the editor, and that wasn't... It wasn't like everybody did it, you see. Right, but right. it would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, imagine we were doing a, uh, a threat case in California, and um, some woman is being stalked and threatened and they notice it says oh baby i knew you were the girl from me when i saw you standing online in the supermarket and they look at that and they say standing online no no you stand in line huh and somebody says oh wait a minute one of the guys who works here says stand online so they arrest him and they say well of course nobody says stand online it has to be joe all right, but but all they've actually done is shrink the suspect pool down to the nine million people who live in the New York City area, where, where we stand online, not in line. You see, so that's why you always can't uh, you can't ever go on your own intuition. You have to do your mm -hmm. homework. And he, was he he was arrested on the basis of that? The guy with the two notes about oh his yes, wife. yes 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 yeah. oh yeah. Okay. But wait, yeah. but a, a New Yorker was incarcerated for a couple of years. Um, uh, because he sounded like the guy on a bomb threat recording. But my professor, William LaBeouf, went out there and said no, and he showed with charts of vowel uh, formation and everything that the guy was from Boston, not New York. But the Californians, because their dialect is so different, they, they couldn't hear the difference between pack the car and park the car, you see? And we, we both drop R's, you know, we say New York and stuff like that. So New York and Boston sound very much alike, but they're not identical. And he was able to get the guy released. Charlene Humert's body was found in the back of her truck in a grocery store parking lot near the couple's home on March 21st, 2004, shortly after her husband reported her missing. In her murder case, Robert was brought in to examine two letters one sent to the police and one sent to the media by her purported killer. Robert was able to compare them and determine if they were written by the same person. Secondly, he was able to provide demographic information on the person who wrote one or both of the letters. One was called the serial killer letter. It began, I killed Charlene Humert, not her husband. Robert was able to put this in a category that the FBI called POMIC, or Post-Defense Manipulation of Investigative Communications. 
In both letters, he discovered a complex form of speech called ironic repetition. He also found something unique about the way the writer of the letters used contractions and compared that to the known writings of Charlene's husband, Brian Humer. Robert's findings led to Brian being charged and convicted for his wife's murder. So I got to know an FBI forensic linguist during this case, and uh, we compared notes and things and uh, communicated, and uh, that's Jim Fitzgerald, who was uh, the FBI agent who was on the Unabomber case and the task force, and he showed the FBI the utility, the usefulness of um, of forensic linguistics in the Unibomb case. So he had been uh, creating these week-long intensive boot camps, forensic linguistic boot camps down at Quantico, where his agents and allied agents from all over the world actually came and we and he recruited me to help him teach and we would teach these uh, intensive week-long courses. And that was really good because it, it alerted all sorts of investigative agencies about the possibility of analyzing language. We used to have as our mantra, language can solve and prevent crimes, but people don't realize it's such useful evidence. And he and I would go around, do all sorts of presentations to different um, agencies and uh, field offices, and always somebody would come out of Every time we would um, give a presentation, somebody would come out of the audience and say, you know, it never occurred to me that language could be evidence I can use on this case. We have a cold case, and there were letters found in the house, but we never knew what to do with them. Could you guys take a look? And so this is how word spread more and more. So when Jim Fitzgerald retired from the FBI, we moved those uh, boot camps up to Hofstra, where I teach, and we would teach them mostly for professionals. I didn't have a program, an academic program then, but then they became the foundation of the academic program. So we have the first and only face-to-face master's degree in forensic linguistics in the Western Hemisphere. Fantastic. They have them in England, Spain, but but not, not here. So... Uh- Robert, can you tell us about uh, a particular case that was that was quite complicated that you were involved in? Sure. Um, I'm trying to think. There are so many, and and you just get more and more into them. Sometimes they take years. Sometimes everything happens in a week. Um, I was getting on an airplane in Tanzania a couple of years ago, and uh, I got a call from. Um, uh, I'll have to blur this a little bit from somebody in the government who was part of a multi-agency uh, task force, uh, and they said that they wanted to know if I could work on a case with them. And I really didn't want to talk on the phone in Tanzania. I didn't know what level of security we needed. Then I wound up in Qatar, and I didn't want to talk on the phone there. And uh, so finally, I get back to New York, uh, dead tired. You know, it's a nine-hour difference or whatever, and. I finally got to talk to these guys, and they said they had somebody who was coming to the U.S. that they had interest in, and uh, they were tracking a dark web seller of opioids and all sorts of other things, and they thought they knew who he was, and they had identified him on the open web, 
and could I analyze the language patterns and see whether uh, I agreed? So I said, sure. Um, I said, when do we need this by? You know, I wanted to sleep for a week. And they said, well, he's coming day after tomorrow. Ah, okay. <laughs> and the other thing was I couldn't figure out why this guy who was coming from a country where there was no extradition tre uh, treaty would come to the United States and put his head in a noose. I just couldn't figure it out, but more about that later. So we did the analysis, and uh, there were many, many very interesting features. The guy was a French speaker. He also spoke other languages, and um, uh, but he mostly used English. There was a mix. There was a very interesting blend, and to make a long story short, it was the same guy. So I said, yes, it's the same guy, and they said, all right, good. I said, now, just let me remind you, there's no way that forensic linguistics can identify a particular person in the world. I can't say that the, that I can't testify that John Smith wrote this. I can say that it's very consistent with his, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I always say in my reports, there may be other people in the world who could produce the exact same set of features. Maybe he had a twin brother sitting next to him, who knows? You have to have the trier of fact make that decision based on my uh, opinion and then evidence of means, motive, and opportunity. So they said, yeah, okay. They said, don't worry, we have uh, financial things too. So you'll just come from behind and and help uh, strengthen our case. I said, okay. Then, like the day before, they called me up again. They said, look, we know the answer to this, but I got to ask you anyway. Can you testify that beyond a reasonable doubt he wrote it? because we don't have the financial information now. And I said, no, I can't, I can't. Yeah. So they said, okay, we know, we know, but we may have you testify anyway. I said, okay. They said, you know, it's very important because once we try to pop him, we're never gonna get him again. If we have to let him go, whoop, he's gonna go up in a puff of smoke and we'll never get him again. So again, I can't give some details, but he actually allowed them into his laptop and phone. And astonishingly, he was so stupid as to have his dark web stuff on his phone and his laptop that he handed over to them. So they were able to uh, make the case. Now, we, when, when we do cases like this, even if it's a couple of days, we spend hours and hours and hours reading and rereading and rereading every single thing somebody writes. And we get to know them better than their mother knows them, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this guy was always talking about having uh, uh, drinks with an underage girl I, and uh, stroking his beard. He had this long beard and uh, uh, all sorts of, of stuff that was pretty distinctive, I must say. So... They pop him, and one of the people on my team, this brilliant woman named Brooke, she called me up, and she said, I know why he's coming. I said, okay. She said, there is a beard contest, a world beard contest in, I think it was Reno, Nevada. And I said, Brooke, you're the smartest person I've ever met. But that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> really? Who yeah. would be so stupid yeah. as to expose come... themselves? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And carry everything on his laptop. And then it's impossible. And she said, okay. Yeah. And sure enough, that's what it was. That's crazy.
Wow. That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. Wow. And, wow. and it's so crazy that there's an NPR um, quiz show, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, where uh, it's a comedy thing. They have these comedians. It's a very, very nice show. And one of the features they have is um, their panelists make up ridiculous stories, and a contestant has to figure out which one is true, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Yeah, I think I've seen it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was yeah. one of the stories, and the person said, well, that's ridiculous. No way. Yeah. No, no way. <laughs> right, but it also showed you how it, it instantly became known. So, yeah, yeah. Crazy. And I see you were also involved in the John Bonet uh, Ramsey case. I was not involved at the time i was probably the only forensic linguist in the world who wasn't and that was fine with me um you know you get inured to death and destruction and torture and rape but uh i i still just don't have the stomach for it if i can i mean for example i can't watch tv shows even based on cases of my own i get i get enough of it at the office yeah, i guess sure, so sure. anyway it's too um, real for you yeah yeah i guess i don't know i can't figure it out Robert Leonard has trained counterintelligence agents for the FBI at Quantico and in places as far flung as Disneyland in London. And he has consulted to the police, counterterrorism and intelligence agencies throughout the US, UK and Canada. Among the cases he's helped solve over the years are the aforementioned Charlene Hummer murder and the Tennessee Facebook murders where the suspects were trying to attribute the murders to an FBI hit. And his testimony has been pivotal in investigating and prosecuting several high-profile cases, including death threats to judges and U.S. Congress members, the triple homicide of the Coleman family in Illinois, the Alvarez spy case, and the high-profile John Benet Ramsey murder, in which a six-year-old beauty pageant winner was found dead in her home and whose murder is still unresolved. So John Benet Ramsey, as you know, a uh, little girl who was a quote-unquote beauty queen and she was killed and then there was this ransom note found and, uh, and nobody ever uh, went to trial and like that. So... Years later, it's around 10 years ago now, I think, a guy named John Carr, an American who's living in Thailand, surfaces. I remember. And he yeah, yeah, says, yeah. yeah, he says, I was with John Benet when she was killed. Uh, presumably, meaning he killed her. And he was in Thailand one step ahead of the Thai police uh, who were about to grab him up for uh, child pornography yeah. or pederasty yeah, or something like yeah, yeah, yeah pedophilia so. yeah and he identified very strongly with little girls god i had to read all his stuff um and uh he said that he wrote the um ransom note so the boulder uh colorado district attorney airlifted him out of thailand and brought him to boulder and every day waiting for uh a hearing or a DNA results. Uh, there was this handwriting expert on Good Morning America and all the other morning shows said, he wrote the note. I stake my reputation on it and everything. Meanwhile, a newspaper hired me to take a look at them. 
there was this whole body of emails that he had sent to some professor who had studied the John Bonnet Ramsey case. So we had those as the known documents, and uh, the question document was, of course, the um, the ransom note. So I looked at the patterns and did an authorship analysis, and I said to the newspaper, "He didn't write this," and they said, "No." Um, <laughs> Come on, couldn't exactly? <laughs> couldn't you say maybe he wrote? <laughs> I said, right. well, okay, maybe, but yeah. no, he, he didn't, didn't do it. it. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, in, in court, I would never say categorically one way or another because I can't know. Okay, sure, may, it's possible, uh, but he didn't do it. He his modals are different. His um, uh, the way he um, uh, emphasizes things are different. Uh, the, uh, his sentence structure is different. Blah blah blah. They said, oh, okay. And then the DNA evidence came in, just as this handwriting expert was saying again that he, and the DNA evidence said he had nothing to do with it. And then he disappeared into the woodwork, apparently. So uh, he, he got what he needed out of this. Yeah, and, and I know some stuff that happens later and I can't talk about. But um, he, he didn't lose his interest in little girls. And yeah, they usually don't. Yeah, I imagine. Don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, that was a really weird uh, ransom note. I remember. Yes, very. And and what probably happened? And uh, um, two guys from behavioral analysis unit that I worked with uh, went on TV with a couple of other experts, and they had a reconstruction of the crime right down to using photographs of the crime scene uh, and constructed it. Uh, so, for example, there were cobwebs in the window uh, that supposedly this person climbed in or out of, but the cobwebs were still there and uh, blah, blah, blah. And to make a long story short, they hypothesized that it was the brother who, his the slightly older brother who was probably jealous of the little girl getting all the attention and you know he's a little kid and maybe he hit her and and like that uh but there was a big court case and they can't talk about it uh anymore but it 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 looked like to and to a lot of people anyway that the mother had written it to cover the crime i mean there was even a crumpled up um first draft in the waste paper basket and i don't think <laughs> you know that's a good kidnappers one. <laughs> do that yes right right, right. and also there were references to movies and things that the Ramses had watched. For example, uh, Don't Try to Grow a Brain, John, and if blah, 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 she dies. If this, that, that, she dies. And these were lines taken from movies and books that they had uh, handy. So more evidence that they had um, had written it themselves. Right. So, Robert, do you still consult for um, law enforcement on a regular oh, yeah. basis? Oh, yeah. FBI, JTTF, uh, et cetera, and um, I've just been named a senior consultant on an IARPA project, uh, the intelligence uh, fast-track uh, governmental, you know, there's DARPA, which is defense. Uh, this is IARPA, stands for Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. They love uh, wow. acronyms in wow. the federal government. Wow, yeah. that's a wild one. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. The, <laughs> And I'm reading from a news release. IARPA, the research and development arm of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, today announced the launch of a program 
that seeks to engineer novel artificial intelligence technologies capable of attributing authorship and protecting authors' privacy. And it's called the Human Interpretable Attribution of Text Using Underlying Structure. Again, they need uh, a, an acronym hiatus program. Represents the intelligence community's latest research effort to advance human language technology. The resulting innovations could have far-reaching impacts with the potential to counter foreign malign influence activities, identify counterintelligence risks, and help, help safeguard authors who would, could be endangered if their writing is connected to them. So, so I'm on a team with some of the best programmers, artificial intelligence, computer experts, in the world from a variety of um, universities. And I'm there because I'm the one who has done several hundred cases. And uh, my team and I uh, have the real practical on there. It's, it's like the way I envision it is, is somebody in the lab is developing fabulous weaponry, but we're the field soldiers who have been in a thousand fights right and right. we have this practical experience and know what features can really be brought to bear yeah so when they say that they're it's an artificial intelligence capability that they're using computer models or programs yes. to, to yes. examine language and right. use of language okay right so yeah. what they are looking at and i'm involved with a um uh a high-tech startup uh which is flint Mm -hmm. uh, forensic linguistics intelligence, where we're developing our own artificial intelligence model. In, in general, in authorship these days, there's a continuum of purely program, uh, computational programs, purely qualitative stuff do by hand, and we take advantage of everything. So the computational models will do something like this. They'll take six novels, and by six different authors and take a chapter and leave that out of the training data. Then they use the six novels as training data for whatever algorithm they've created. And then they, when the algorithm says, okay, I've, I've eaten these uh, novels, I'm ready for my test, they put back in the chapter and they can identify which novel it came from up to 85% of the time, which is pretty good. However, in actual real-world uh, forensic situations, you, you don't get six novels. Yeah, and it's not going to work other, that way. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And the other problem is typically they have no idea why the algorithm worked in the sense that they don't know what features of language are being picked up. So, for example, uh, one of the best guys in the world several years ago said to me, oh, I have an algorithm now. We used uh, character trigrams. That means... S strings of three characters. So the cat has T-H-E-H-E -E space, E space C, C-A-T, you see? So you chop up your no uh, novels into character trigrams. And then the that's the, the feature that is looked at. So these character trigrams, the algorithm can tell the set of them, this chapter, 
the set of them in this chapter probably came from novel number three. And I said, wow, that's really great. You got 85% uh, accuracy. I said, why does it work? And uh, he said to me, what do you mean, why does it work? I said, well, what aspect of language is it using to, I mean, or revealing? And he says, I don't know, who cares? It works. I said, because it might not work in the next data set. When we do analyses, we always do it based on many, many years of theoretical foundation of stuff in peer-reviewed journals, totally empirically based. So, I mean, for example, we could see in that um, California case, we know that there are such things as dialects. Those are very, very theoretical. They don't really exist. You see what I mean? They are actually theoretical constructs, but everything has to be grounded in that. So... Uh, Professor Lebovo was able to say this is New York dialect and this is Boston dialect. So what is it, I, t I asked him, is it the I-O-N words? Maybe, you know, the more Latinate you are, the more I-O-N. He says, I don't know. So that's the problem, that it can't be explained because a lot of the AI stuff is black box. And it's fine for a lot of stuff. But it isn't fine for this. It's so too this, generalized, right? Well, yeah. they don't know. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. This, this project has to be human interpretable, see? It has to be explainable to a human, why? And then, and here's the other side, it has to be able to be scrambled so that our good guys, so to speak, their language can be mixed in a way that it can't be deciphered later so that the quote-unquote bad guys can't know which of our people are writing. So that's a two-step thing, and you need the practical experience for that. Now, our, um, our startup, we, have, we took 60 or 70 of my cases, uh, authorship cases, and we looked at the features that actually helped us cracked these cases and came up with a 500-page document. And this was the basis of our AI. Our AI was not based on character trigrams and that's it. It was based on features that we knew had worked before. Now, we had already worked with a very big anti-plagiarism outfit. And this anti-plagiarism outfit is a, virtually every college and university in the country uses them. So uh, a student doesn't even write his term paper and give it to his professor anymore. He gives it to this website, which scans it for plagiarism and then gives it over to the professor <laughs> to make sure, you know, just wasn't just uh, Wikipedia or something. Oh, my okay? God. Yeah. Well, this yeah. happens in just about every college and university now. And... Um, they wanted to counter another real threat to what's called academic integrity, which is buying papers that are custom written. See, and there are all these websites that'll write your paper for you. And it's not going to be a plagiarism thing. So uh, I advised them. And then when they found out I had this document, they, their, their AI guy said, can we have it? I said, well, you know, so then we worked that out. But but they couldn't make use of it because what the analogy I came up with was like you say to me, uh, Rob, I, I would really like a Mercedes. And I say, okay. So I back up 
a, a big truck with all the Mercedes parts to your driveway, and I dump these parts on the driveway. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, unless you're an auto, <laughs> auto, uh, auto engineer, you're not yeah. going to know what to do. So I gave them the equivalent. I gave them all these features, and I showed them how it worked. But they didn't have the skill to put it together because that skill just didn't exist anywhere. And these were fabulous, brilliant artificial intelligence engineers. So that's what this IARPA uh, project is trying to do and what uh, our startup, the Flint startup, does. Right, too. right. Because, uh, I mean, languages and the use of language is so idiosyncratic, right? There's so many, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so many variables to try to just put it Absolutely. in a box with 500 features is going to be... Uh, well, you don't know. know how to... How to it, it Really, the car parts is a pretty good analogy. So, and in court... We can't say, well, my algorithm said that Joe uh, wrote this. And they'll say, oh, really? As one uh, lawyer said to me, you can't cross-examine a black box. So it doesn't work. You have to show why. You have to show features. So, so as you and I have spoken about before, there's so much intelligence to be mined from, from language because it is so rich and so varied. So every time we open our mouths or sit down at our computers and write something, we're revealing a lot about our background. Because the language that we use, our linguistic habits, shows where we're from, where we've lived, how old we are, what we do for a, a work, what movies, what sports, what schools what you've, you've attended. Been sure, everything, the things you've been right. exposed and every, to. That's right, and every yeah. person you've ever talked to might have had. So we can do what's called linguistic demographic profiling and find somebody's nationality, native language, occupation, training, education, where they've lived, their age, their experience, their work group identity, their individual identity, finally, if we get uh, a small enough suspect pool. So, I mean, I've testified in, God, Murder, death threats, forgery, fraud, corporate espionage, contracts. And we, oh, we do a lot of uh, civil cases, too. I was Apple's linguist against both Microsoft and Amazon trying to protect their App Store trademark um, and uh, the interpretation of contracts, writing these death penalty instructions. And uh, I had a job to write rewrite the murder one and murder two um, descriptions for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, from the public defenders uh, asked me to do that because jurors were unable to understand the difference. And uh, what we did was we took these vast uh, databases, corpora, of we took two different corpora and compared the use of words in them. So one corpus, one database, was all legal language. It was uh, law books and like that. And the other one is the corpus of contemporary American English, COCA, which has a billion words. Yeah, uh, diff two from, different languages. Yeah, That's yeah. right, that's yeah. right. So we looked at, for example, obviously uh, for it to be murder, it has to be on purpose, right? So the, the way it was written had willful. But it turns out in normal parlance, the most common use of the word willful is the willful little child who won't eat her spinach. 
not on purpose, not with that. So just don't pick that word. Willful is more like stubborn. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So you don't want, and you might say, well, of course they know they're going to know it didn't mean stubborn there. But any any disruption, any speed bump in understanding is not good, and it should be taken out. So we did that with all the words in the in the the um, murder descriptions. It must be interesting to you to listen to the news, Robert, because especially like maybe in the last, I don't know, four or five years, we've become more aware of uh, how information is presented to us, right? And the language that is used. Well, you know, so that's because you're an analytical guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a different take on it. I mean, yes, you're seeing that. I agree with you. But. But I think for most people, there's an old uh, Paul Simon uh, song, which is, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest, right? And that is how humans process everything. And especially, that's how they process language. Sometimes a judge... uh, uh, will say, you know, the, the other side will say, all right, look, Dr. Leonard, you're a great expert and all, but we don't need to judge. You speak English. And <laughs> we have to make the case, look, um, most of what happens in language, it's like an iceberg. We just see this tiny little strip above the water. Most of what happens goes on underneath. And I said, there, there's a, a four-sentence uh, demonstration of this that I got once from a book on how we get meaning from reading. Mm -hmm. The amazing thing is that the information that we get from language comes almost entirely from our own head. Yeah. The information, there's almost no information in the words that somebody speaks to you. And this is the demonstration (laughs) of that. John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. So... Okay, who's John? Obviously, he's a schoolboy, right? So you ask people, uh, how's he going to school? Somebody will say, on a school bus. Somebody will say, walking. Okay, so we've communicated. But what have we communicated? Is he on the bus or is he walking? Did he skydive? It didn't say he didn't. Is he two feet tall? Is he 12 feet tall? What does he look like? Does he have brown hair, black hair, no hair? See, but, but this is considered communicating. Where is the information coming from? It's coming from your own head. John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the math lesson. Last week, he had been unable to control the class. Now, who is he? He's a teacher. Now, how is he going, most people say? Oh, he's in a car. Okay, so I was training Danish criminal investigators in Copenhagen. And when I said, now, how is John? Now, he's a teacher. Now, how is he going? Every single person in the class said, on his bike. Because to them, a teacher goes to school, that's right, on a bicycle. It probably would have been the same in Amsterdam. And, and this shows that you have to have a match of what's called schemas. These are pre-set narratives about the way the world works. John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really worried about the last math lesson. Last week, he'd been unable to control the class. It had been unfair of the math teacher to leave him in charge. Now, what is he? Okay, so now, 
most people say, well, he's a substitute teacher or an assistant teacher. And when I was doing research on this, one, one person said to me, you know, she said, I've never had a substitute or an assistant teacher who couldn't control the class, but I know it's a thing. So I have to assume that whoever wrote that sentence meant for me to believe it's an assistant or a substitute teacher. And that was a brilliant comment. And it shows how meaning is negotiated based on who you are and who the person who is speaking to you thinks you are. And this has to do with what's called theory of mind. What do I think that you think that I think that you think? After all, it's not a normal part of a janitor's duties. So turns out to be a janitor. John was on his way to school last Friday. He was really a math lesson. Last week, he'd been unable to control the class. It had been unfair of the teacher to leave him in charge. After all, it's not a normal part of a janitor's duties. All of those stories come not from the words. The words trigger. See, and this is what you were picking up, Ralph. People are very carefully choosing words that they know are going to trigger stories. And then sometimes they say, well, I didn't actually say that. I mean, right. that was your interpretation. Right, right, so that right. was, a, that was a very insightful. Right. And so, so it's almost as though we need to dig beneath language in a sense and start to understand those patterns that we, right. that we just accept. That's right. right. Yeah. And you have to be very, very careful, just like when I was writing the death penalty or the both and, and the uh, murder uh, descriptions. What will a person actually interpret if I put this word down? Yeah. Wow. That gets really complicated. And then there are other cases, too. For example, uh, Tanya Christensen, that uh, superb linguist from uh, Denmark, she was asked by uh, the authorities there to analyze instant messages that mm. were on purpose very, very vague because they had to do with somebody being recruited or applying, actually, to go to the Middle East to be trained in bomb-making by ISIS and then come back to Denmark. Now, of course, nobody's going to say that openly in their instant messaging. And without knowing anything about the case, they kept her very, very... They, they didn't want to prime her interpretation of anything. She analyzed and she realized, okay, when they said 2,000, that probably meant euros because 2,000 Danish krona wouldn't make any sense. And so where were they going to do this? And then um, it was obviously that Turkey that they were talking about. And she constructed this whole thing because she looked at every single angle, like crystalline uh, of, um, uh, structure, of what, and it turned out that she was able to say that it was very likely X, Y, and Z, and that helped convict the guy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 That's it's called discourse analysis. Yeah. Incredible. In addition to being a leading expert in forensic linguistics, Dr. Robert Leonard, while a student at Columbia University in the late 60s, became a founding member of the group Shanana. He opened for Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock and played with Janis Joplin, Santana, The Grateful Dead, Chuck Berry, and even The Beatles. Shanana went on to be the dance band in the movie Grease, and their greaser look and doo-wop sound became an inspiration for the hit Broadway show. Today, Robert's the director of the graduate program in linguistics, forensic linguistics, at Hofstra University, and one of the world's leading experts in a field of study that is increasingly used by legal professionals, 
law enforcement, and intelligence communities around the world. We thank Robert Leonard for his contributions in music and forensic linguistics. It's our great honor to welcome him as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our producers are myself, Frank Hobbs, and Apex Media. If you haven't already, please download, rate, review, and subscribe. And check out some of our past episodes, such as Welcome to the CIA. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines. Mm-hmm.